So what were some of the rules in your home when you were growing up? I mean, those things uh, where your parents would say something like, you know, in this family we always, or, you know, that's not the way we do things around here. Or maybe, stop me if you've heard this one, as long as you live under my roof. Anybody remember some of that? Can you think of some? You know, my mom made it real easy. Somewhere along the line, she put up signs out in her garden that said, thou shalt not wine, crab, or carry on, right? So we knew. Think about, for a moment, some of those things that were in your mind. Turn, turn to somebody near you, maybe somebody you came with or somebody around you, and share with them something that you remember, one of those rules that you remember that express your family values. Take just a minute to do that. We don't do a lot of sharing in the middle of sermons around here, but. That's one of our family values is we don't talk to them. Just kidding. So, <clears throat> the good old days, right? We're looking back and remembering. When uh, Shelly and I were dating, she listened to more country music than I did at that point back in the 80s. And, and uh, she introduced me to a, uh, a country music duo that became a classic, The Judds. And they had a, a song, one of the first songs that caught my attention was called Grandpa, Tell Me About the Good Old Days. Anybody remember that song? That's a, a song looking back on how the world's gone crazy and there was a time when we, we had values that we passed along. As we're thinking of the good old days, do you remember watching home movies or looking through photo albums and scrapbooks when you were younger? You know, some, some folks think that's Kind of boring, I guess, but uh, that was always exciting to me. Whenever mom would get out the projector and we'd watch those, those films, kids today will, will never understand that special feeling, that special nostalgic sound of the, the click, click, click of the 8 millimeter film reels, right? I see the grins of people who are old, <laughs> like me. Us old folks, we, we get it, right? There was something about that. Something special. I don't know, watching it on a DVD, that's not quite the same. You know, there is a, there's something intuitive in us that, that, that just recognizes this need to pass things on. Why do, you, why do you think our parents and grandparents were so interested in showing us these things? Telling us old stories. Why are we interested in them generation after generation why do you think it takes us until we're older to actually get interested a lot of times when we're younger especially as teenagers we're like oh, again dad what does that story have to do with anything in my life and yet as we get older we recognize man i, I kind of wish i'd heard more of those stories and then when mom and dad are gone it's too late and we think, man, if, I, if only I could have written some of that down. There is something important about this learning family values and heritage. And parents feel a desire to pass these things on to their kids. Very often we see this in immigrant families. When you, you come from the old country, whatever the old country might be, and you want to not, even as you're assimilating, you don't want to lose that heritage. You don't want to lose that connection. Because all of that in the past makes you who you are. It helps define our family, the heritage, 
the values all work together. For those things to get passed on, parents have to be intentional. We don't just free range our kids like we might with chickens and expect that they're just going to turn out to be mature, disciplined, well-adjusted, educated adults. We, we discipline them when they're young. Don't put that in your mouth. Don't say those words. Well, we had a lot of rules about that when I was growing up. Those, those are words we don't use in this family. And we apply artificial means of pain, of consequences, to help reinforce that. We explain, we hold accountable. There's a deliberate, intentional effort put into growth. We send our kids to school or we homeschool them ourselves. We take responsibility for helping them become educated, to grow up, to become mature, to be everything that they were meant to be. We don't trust it to just happen accidentally. Oh, they're just going to get it. Now, there are some things that, that we absolutely do get. I pick up my family mannerisms by being around the people in my family. And as much as I might be taught certain things, as parents we can recognize that our values are more often caught than taught, right? Maybe you grew up hearing, do as I say, not as I do. Raise your hand if that's you. Anybody hear that? How well did that work? We end up doing what, what we see. So we need to model that in our families. And we need to teach, and we need to live and we need to surround one another. This is why we have family reunions, so we don't lose touch with where we came from. This is significant. And this is exactly what Paul is getting at, in, uh, particularly in this section of Ephesians chapter 4. As we look at verses 11 through, uh, 11 through 16 here, he is getting into this idea, this core reality, growing deep, is essential to life in Christ. Growing deep is essential to life in Christ. Now, remember in, in verse 1 of chapter 4, he's saying, I urge you, brothers and sisters, I'm emphatically urging you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received, to walk worthy of your calling. In other words, to live a life that fits who you now are in Christ. The first three chapters have been establishing this idea that who we were ain't good. We were dead. But God, in His unspeakable mercy and love toward us, reaches in, snatches us out of our own filth, and says, listen, this dead one is not only now alive, but is now mine. I have chosen them. I have set my affection upon them. And I'm giving my son to pay for their sin. To give them new life in him. Because of that, we are literally royalty. Princes and princesses, we are king's kids. It's really important for us to recognize that for us to live as king's kids, we got to know what that means. We got to know the king. And we got to know what it means to belong to him. 
growing deep, is essential to life in Christ. A life worthy of a child of God is rooted in truth and knowledge as we grow up to be like Jesus. As Paul is working through this, this picture here, he uses a few different illustrations along the way, but it comes back to a body illustration, this, this together, working body life, growing up into Christ. He throws in here a nautical illustration to help us get the point of stability versus instability as we grow. But all of this hinges on the reality that we cannot follow Christ if we remain in infancy. Nobody can. Gabe's talking about playing softball. It's great to have infants, but you don't want them on your softball team. They can't keep up. They crawl. That's worse than me. I can at least walk to the base. I can't run very well, but I can at least walk there. Babies are cute, but they're very limited. Baby Christians are cute when we're getting started. But if you have been in Christ and you're still a baby, you should be growing and you failed to grow, brother, it ain't cute anymore. It's time to grow up. Verse 11 is where we're picking up. And, and notice what Paul says. Having spoken of Christ, uh, having the victory, taking captivity captive, uh, he now says, so Christ himself, there's an, there's an emphasis here, right? This is an emphatic reference. It's not just Jesus did this. I want you to know it's Jesus specifically. Jesus himself, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up. Now, let's stop here for a moment. It, we have a tendency in this passage to, to bog down on these gifts. We're not going to spend a lot of time on, on the individual gifts here because that's not really Paul's point. The point here is that these particular gifts, these teaching and preaching, proclamation and explanatory gifts are for the body. They are to prepare each individual member to work and to serve one another so that we can be built up. These are teaching gifts, but they're not the only gifts, as we'll see a little bit later. We're all called to acts of service, and the teaching gifts are to help prepare us to serve one another so that as we are serving one another in the church, the purpose of it is the maturity, the building up of the body. We work together in that. Notice this. Jesus intends and equips his people to help one another grow deep. Jesus intends and equips his people to help one another grow deep. It's not an accident. He specifically... This is why Paul is emphasizing this. Jesus didn't just watch this happen. He didn't sit on the sidelines and say, oh, hey, you know, that person's a pretty good teacher. That's pretty cool. I'm going to make them a pastor because they're pretty good at this. No, he's specifically assigned as he determined. We read previously that, that he gives grace. He apportions grace according to his will as he sees fit. And in some cases, he says, this person, maybe they're 
not gifted at all in themselves, but he says, you're going to be gifted because I'm going to put my spirit upon you to do the work for which I have prepared you. Remember chapter 2, verse 10? We're his workmanship. We are created to do the good works that he prepared in advance for us to do. It's not a game to Jesus. Jesus sees body life as crucial. And so he intends for us to grow up. And he intends for us to serve one another, to help one another grow up. And he equips us in the church to be able to do that. It's not about professionalism. It's not about uh, a vocation and climbing a ladder. And who's more gifted? It's about taking what God has given us and being faithful to it. The gifts that he gives prepare the body for service that builds one another up. There's, there's a choice in it. There's an intentionality to it. Jesus is intentional, and therefore we need to be intentional. Notice that gr growing at its very nature requires effort. It requires diligence. When you go to school, whatever level of school you're in, from, from kindergarten to a doctorate program, you don't just show up, they take attendance, and then they give you the, the next grade or they give you your degree. You have to actually apply yourself. You have to actually do something. Now, maybe in some places they do, but it's not worth anything, right? You have to actually apply yourself. Nobody learns math by sitting next to someone who knows math. Now, that might help you on the test. That's not really the point. You're not learning anything. Everybody here knows what 2 plus 2 equals, right? What is it? No, seriously, what is it? It is? I should have paid more attention in school. Now, there was a time you didn't know that. Now, maybe you've forgotten because you were too young. But, but when you were little in school, someone had to teach you that 2 plus 2 equals 4. And many of us got it wrong. Now you can't even think of that. Because you, at that time, when you were young, before you even knew, someone if you will, indoctrinated you with that truth. And so you learned that. But you didn't learn it because they said it. You go to school and, and your teacher doesn't say, hey, 2 plus 2 is 4, and you get it forever and they never do anything more with it. No, you repeat it. And you write it out. And then you take a quiz or a test or whatever they call it when you're young. We pretend they're tests. You, you go through and you keep doing and you keep practicing. Even as, as young as preschool, you're learning habits. We wash our hands after we go to the bathroom. Please learn that habit. COVID has brought some things to the fore, right? We should have always been washing our hands. Anyway, I digress. We need to practice. We need to learn. There's a diligence and an effort that goes into growing, that grows into becoming more than we are today. We recognize this when we're talking about professional development. Virtually every career requires you to keep learning doesn't matter what it is some some you have to take you know special courses for it some it's just on the job you're learning something new all the time and if you don't you don't keep up with those around you and you probably don't hold on to your job we have to continue to develop athletes have to continue to practice continue to train continue to get better because if we don't get better we slide back if you're playing baseball at the same level you played in high school you're not going to succeed in the major leagues that's how it works 
He might end up playing for the Cubs, but that's another story. I know it hurts me more than it hurts you. Mike likes it when I say stuff like that. It is unnatural not to grow. If we're not growing, it reveals health problems. We, we can see that physically. If you have a baby who's just adorable as a newborn and a year later they haven't grown, they haven't gained weight, something's not right. And you take them to the doctor to see if you can figure out what's not right. Something, something is amiss. Maybe it's malnourishment. Sometimes our growth is hindered by poor hygiene. We see this in, in uh, poverty situations. The health is affected by lack of hygiene. Sometimes it's a lack of exercise. Emotional and intellectual growth requires discipline and even pain. It hurts for us to grow, and we recognize this. Shoot, we do it voluntarily when we are working on our hobbies. Any golfers out there? Raise your hand if you're a golfer. All right? We work on our golf swing, right? If not, then you probably look like me when you're golfing. And nobody wants to see that. We don't just show up. We get serious. Some more serious than others. But the level of application, the more we work at it, the better we get at it. If you've been playing golf for a number of years, it's not as much fun for you to play with somebody like me who's played like twice in my life, right? It's not enjoyable. You want to play with somebody who's grown up a little bit in the game. There is a difference between a master chess player and a five-year-old trying to play. Don't play chess with a five-year-old. There is an important reality that we need to recognize. There is a cost. There is an effort. Why do we recognize this in every other area of life except for our spiritual growth? We recognize that if I want to get good at my job, I have to, I have to read the manuals, I have to go to the trainings, I have to do these things. If I want to get good at golf, I've got to practice my swing. Why don't we do this with our Christian lives? We think it's enough to show up to church once in a while. Maybe show up to church every week. But we don't diligently apply ourselves to growing. We don't challenge ourselves. We're satisfied with the same faith we had five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago. If you are the same Christian today that you were five years ago, you better check your health. You might be malnourished. You might have some hygiene issues. You might need to, if you will, remove some filth from your life. We have to grow, or it tells us an awful lot about where we are in our walk with Christ. To live a life worthy requires it. Jesus intends and equips his people to help one another grow deep. Notice this in verse 13. Okay, we see first Jesus intends and equips his people to help one another grow deep. Notice also, we become like Christ through humble growth in doctrine and devotion. We become like Christ through humble growth in doctrine and devotion. Verse 13 shows the end of, of this process. Christ gives gifts for the equipping of His people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Notice in verse 13, 
until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. A couple of things here. We cannot become mature until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, in the sense of being fully and perfectly mature as a body, he's referring not just to individual maturity, but to body maturity. When the church becomes completely mature and grows up fully into Him who is our head, when we become just like Christ, that's going to happen when He returns. That's when we'll be perfected. Until that time, we continue to grow. We continue to grow up into Him. And there are two areas that he mentions. First, it develops, as we grow in our maturity, it develops a unity in the faith. In doctrine is what he's talking about. A unity in the teachings. Right now, as Paul says elsewhere, we see as through a glass dimly. We don't understand everything. And so we have disagreements about things. That's why people are like, well, you know, I think the Bible teaches uh, baptism of infants. I think the Bible doesn't teach baptism of infants, but only of those who are adult believers and and, uh, make a choice, a confessional, creedal baptism. We disagree because we don't see everything yet. But as we grow, as we grow closer to where the Bible is leading us, so that eventually, when we get home, we see everything clearly. Do you realize when we get to heaven... There won't be doctrinal division or disagreement because we will see it as it really is when we see Christ as He really is. In the meantime, we continue to grow. We continue to learn. We continue to work at it. And as we develop a a deeper understanding of what the Scriptures teach, not the word of the preacher, but the word of God, we become more unified. And we begin to recognize that this isn't really about me. It's not about my denomination. It's not about my my framework of understanding, the systematic theology that I have grown to love so much and identify with. It's about what does God say? So that I'm humble enough to let go of what has identified me previously. It's no longer about who is right. It's about what is right. Becoming mature in the likeness of Christ involves growing in biblical doctrine and connection to Christ. We become like Christ through humble growth in doctrine and devotion. He says that this brings about a unity in the faith and a unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, I had to wrestle with this a little bit because I wanted to make sure I wasn't getting it wrong. That word translated knowledge here is the Greek word epigenosis. It's a little stronger, more specific. It's a little different than the general word for knowledge that he uses in chapter 3, just gnosis. That's, that's a broader knowledge. This has the connotation here of a relationship. It's not just knowing, but it's knowing and Owning, knowing and being specifically connected, related to. 
It's knowing Christ in a relational way. So as we grow in our doctrine, we gain unity. And as we grow in our relationship to Christ, we're not chasing all different images of Christ, but we get to know Him personally as He really is. And we are united not only in the teachings, but in our connection to the person of Christ, our devotion to Him. There is a growth that brings that about, and there's a growth that comes from it. Becoming mature in the likeness of Christ involves growing in biblical doctrine and connection to Christ. Understand, though, that unity requires humility. It's a humble growth because unity requires humility. I have to focus on the word of truth, not on my framework. As I mentioned earlier, it's about what is right, not who is right. Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we'll look at verses 1 and 2. Hopefully many of you already have this memorized. If not, I would challenge you to do that. It's not our memory verse today. It's extra credit. <laughs> Romans chapter 12 Verses 1 and 2, having looked at the, the plan of salvation, the human condition, and all of God's grace toward us to save us in His sovereign grace, Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you'll be able to test and to prove what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. If we are going to understand what it means to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received, we need to have our minds renewed by God's Word so that the Holy Spirit through that Word can transform us from within. If we don't, it's just like if I don't pass on my family values to my kids. If we don't develop this knowledge, the teaching and the connection to Christ, the doctrine and the devotion, if we do not renew our minds with the Word so that we are transformed, we will be conformed to the pattern of the world. The world around us will shape our thinking, will shape our behavior, and will begin to justify ungodly behavior according to human understanding. We may even put a Christian spin on it. We may use proof texts or spiritual-sounding phrases to justify behavior that breaks the heart of our Father because we have learned our values from the world around us, the flesh within us, and the devil who comes against us rather than learning the values and heritage of our family through the Word of God. This is about humble growth. Unity requires humility. Truly sound doctrine leads to holiness and love. Truly sound doctrine leads to holiness and love. We show that we know the family values when we reflect who Christ really is. 
Again, it's not about information. It's not about how smart you are, how many theological words you know. It's not about whether you know biblical Greek and Hebrew. It's not about whether you have, have a great history with church hierarchy and you understand all of the, the history of the church that is, is beyond most of us. It's not about whether you're smarter than anybody. It's not even about how many Bible verses you memorize. It's about how many of those verses shape your life. How much of God's Word is in you matters only when it's how much of God's Word is shaping and transforming you. I have to be submitted to it. You realize that the devil knows God's Word backwards and forwards? Fat lot of good it does him. He's not surrendered to it. So you and I can know it inside and out, but if it's not ours, if we're not connected and devoted to it, if we're not changing because of it, if it doesn't result, if our increase in knowledge of truth doesn't increase our love and our grace toward others, then we don't know Christ. Sound doctrine brings about holiness and love so that we reflect the reality of Christ through relationships. I'm going to have you turn to 2 Peter. We move to the left of Ephesians. Now we're going to go to the right of Ephesians, toward the back of the book. 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read what he says in 2 Peter chapter 1. While you're finding it, I just want to point out that we already have all we need in Christ. We already have it. He's already made us whole in Him when we have received Him by faith. Everything that is needed for faith and godliness is already in us through Him. We have it in His Word. We have His Holy Spirit living in us. But exercise leads to growth, and growth increases our practice of godliness. Notice what he says here. Chapter 1, starting with verse 2. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus, and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has already given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through, through them, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason... Make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. Now hang on a second. Didn't he say we already have everything we need? Why do I got to keep adding stuff? This is not a checklist of behaviors. It's not a checklist of how you're going to keep in good standing with God. This is the fruit that comes out. If you want to know, you want to be assured of your salvation, you want to be confident as a Christian, then don't sit around in your diaper waiting for things to happen. Grow up and add to what you already have. You're not adding anything new. You're putting on the clothes that are provided. Everything that you need for a godly life is already yours through Christ. But we don't want to get sucked into the corruption we've escaped. 
We don't want to get sucked in by the evil desires that still are prevalent. Instead, we want to make every effort to add to our faith all of these things that grow out of our faith. Verse 8, For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective. Let me say that again. If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If I am growing, I won't stumble in my trust of Him. doesn't mean I don't stumble and fall as I'm growing. I won't stumble in knowing who I am. I won't stop trusting God. Now, I'm going to stop trusting God sometimes. Do you realize that for most of us, that's the pattern of our faith? It's, it's kind of up and down like a roller coaster. It's not a highway. Why am I stumbling? Because I'm not consistently increasing in these qualities. I'm not growing. When I stop growing, I start stumbling. So what do I do? I get up and I keep going. And I get back to the growth. I get back to adding these things to that faith that saved me. I take hold of Christ and I let Him do that transforming work through the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life as I renew my mind by His Word. Practicing godliness causes us to grow. We already have everything we need. This isn't gaining us our calling and election. This is confirming it in our own minds and for those who watch. If I'm in Christ, it shows up in how I live. If I don't do that, I'm going to lack confidence. I'm going to doubt. But the more I exercise, the more I grow, the more confident I become. The more we practice mature thoughts and actions, the greater our confidence and assurance becomes in Christ. We become like Christ through humble growth in doctrine and devotion. Next, notice this. Maturity brings stability and protects us from deception. Maturity brings stability and protects us from deception. We're going to go back to verse 14 of Ephesians 4, but before we do, turn to Psalm, Psalm 1. Go right to the middle of your Bible. It's easy to find. Psalm 1. Before there was a church, God's Word already stood. There are principles here that we need to recognize. You could go through the the book of Proverbs and see so many things about wisdom and the diligence required to get wisdom, to chase after it, to make it your passion and your aim. And every time you see wisdom, it's virtually interchangeable with the maturity we're talking about in Christ. In Psalm 1, we see this. The psalmist writes, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take. Or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on His law day and night. Notice there's a, a diligence, a choice. 
That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Sounds a lot like what we just read from Peter, doesn't it? There's a stability here and it produces fruit. You will not be unproductive and ineffective as you continue to grow. How? Roots planted deep in the soil near the streams of water gaining life. He continues in verse 4, not so the wicked. They don't have this stability. They don't have this productivity. They might produce, but they're not producing the fruit, the fruit of godliness. Not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 4. Maturity brings stability, and it protects us from deception. He's talking here in verse 14 about avoiding false teachers. Notice what he says. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. There is a basic instability in this picture that he gives us. Being tossed about on a violent ocean. Picture a ship without a rudder, without a keel. It has no direction. It's ready to tip over at any moment. Its sails might pick up all kinds of winds, but he's just going where the wind takes Maturity gives us stability. It gives us a keel to keep us upright and a rudder to choose our direction. We get to go where we know is right rather than where the prevailing winds are blowing. Society's winds will blow us all sorts of different directions. And we're seeing that in the church today in America. Not only in America, but we're here. We're seeing prevailing winds of culture changing the message in far too many pulpits. We are not here to go along to get along. We are not here to please the people around us. We are not here to be seeker-driven. That's not love, no matter what people tell you. We are here to proclaim and to embrace the eternal Word of God, The good news that despite the fact that you are dead in your sins, you can be made alive in Christ. Despite the fact that you are facing God's judgment, every single person, Jesus died in your place. He already took that judgment. So all you have to do is trust Him. And the unspeakable love of God that seems so reckless from a human perspective, takes hold of us. And He already did that before you cleaned up your act, so stop trying, because you can't get yourself clean enough for it to matter. This is a reality that is too big to ignore. Maturity brings stability and protects us from deception. We need to not be tossed about by the false teachings that come. 
blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Why do people get taken in by televangelists telling them to mortgage their house, to send money to some ministry so that you can have some healing that's more emotional than real? Now don't misunderstand. God is a God of miracles. And when God chooses to heal, He heals. But it's not going to do it because you put your hands on the radio and send in money. God's miracles are not for sale. Never have been, never will be. Specifically condemned. So anytime you ever hear any teacher tell you otherwise, read Acts chapter 8. Read about Balaam. Read about Simon the magician. When you see the condemnation of anyone who thinks that money can bring about God's power, man, you better run from that. But how do we know? How do we not get sucked into these things? By putting down deep roots in God's Word. When you know the Word yourself, then no preacher can take you down some primrose path to destruction. You can't be misled when your roots are deep. You can pull up a lot of weeds in your garden, but those stinking dandelions seem to get away every time, don't they? They got deep roots. Deep roots don't come out easy. When we have shallow roots, when we have a faith that's based on our experiences and how emotional it feels on a Sunday morning, and that's the extent of our faith, boy, that was a great song. I really love the feeling I get at those big conferences that, that fill me with emotion. I get fired up until I come down off the mountaintop and I get down into the valley where real life happens and I get tossed around. Why? Because my roots are shallow. They're in experience, not in God's Word. There is a stability that comes with our maturity. I'm not going to have you look up all the passages that I would like to, but I would like you to turn to Colossians, just a, a few pages past Ephesians, jump over Philippians, land in chapter 2 of Colossians. In the midst of this, we'll find our memory verse for today in, uh, verses in, in verses 6 and 7. Colossians chapter 2, Paul writing, at essentially the same time as he writes the letter to Ephesians, you'll see some very strong similarities between them. Hear his words. As he writes to the Colossian church, he says, I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, Continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition 
and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. This maturity, this stability, is something that you need to be looking for in a church. Now, many of us end up going different places to, you know, for work, you move or whatever, and you have to find another church. I pray God keeps you here for as, as long as possible. But if you're looking for a church, look for a church that is rooted in the truth of God's Word in such a way that it produces unity so that the people there are increasing in love and grace, but never at the expense of truth. And they're growing in truth and knowledge, but never at the expense of love and grace. There should be a kinship. Every time you are looking for a church or recommending a church for someone else, run away from the mentality that says, man, they got the coolest music. Man, they got the greatest coffee. You got that coffee spot out there. It's so big and the preacher's just really dynamic. Stop looking for dynamic preachers. Look for faithful preachers. Look for music that conveys content that is worth singing to the Most High God. Man, if we're just singing the same emotional choruses over and over and over and over again, are we growing at all? Depth, maturity, it matters. Maturity brings stability and protects us from deception. See this. Christ-like love compels us to speak eternal truth to others. Christ-like love compels us to speak the truth to others. In Ephesians 4, verse 15, Paul says, Instead, not being tossed about by all the, the winds of whatever is the current uh, popular doctrine, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head, that is Christ. Again, notice, this is couched in the context of the body. It's not just that you as an individual become mature, but we as a body become mature. This is the goal. We're in this together. But His emphasis in this verse is on speaking the truth in love to the end of maturity. When sharing the faith becomes scary or awkward for us, that's true for so many of us. We are compelled by the love of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 to 21 is a great place for you to check that out. You don't have to turn there. You can look at it for your homework. If you're here very often, then you know this is a, a passage we turn to a lot. But Paul says here that Christ's love compels us to think differently about people. We don't look at people from a worldly perspective anymore. We once looked at Christ through human understanding. Now we don't look at anybody through human understanding because we have been brought from death to life. And because God reconciled us to Himself, He gave us the ministry of reconciliation so that we can live as His ambassadors. Why? 
Because Christ's love compels us. This is too big. Reality is too real. The gospel is too good. And hell is too horrible for us not to speak. Why can we overcome the awkwardness that sometimes comes up in our sharing our faith? Because reality is that important. And Christ's love does not let us off the hook. If I feel God prompting me to speak the truth of the gospel to someone, and I don't, I am failing to love that person. If I have someone that I love who is living in sin, and I don't tell them, and I just let them think it's good. Hey, it's cool, man. Do whatever you want. I love you. I support you. All your choices are good. Man, you don't believe that in any aspect of life. Nobody's choices are all good. And love does not tell someone that a bad choice is a good choice. No, it's cool. Keep driving 95 while you're texting. It's great. No problem. I love you. I support you. Somebody say, stupid. Man. Why would we do that with things that will send people to hell? Why would we do that and tell people that living contrary to God is fine? God wants you happy. He does in heaven. But you being happy here by going against God's commands doesn't leave you happy in heaven. It leaves you tormented. And such sin is its own punishment. When society calls good evil and evil good, we speak truth in love. Isaiah 5, verses 20 and 21 say, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah about his own people. He's talking about Israel. At the beginning of the chapter, he's like, this is my vineyard. I love them. And I will devastate them because they need to be purged of this. And my own people are calling evil good and good evil. And it has to stop. We are compelled by the love of Christ to speak truth in love. But truth apart from love is abusive. And love apart from truth is a lie. I must tell the truth about wrath and grace. When Jesus began His earthly ministry, the first thing we have recorded from Him is a call to repentance. The kingdom is near. The time has fully come. Repent and receive the good news. Repent and be saved. He doesn't say, God's grace is here, so don't sweat it, Pops. It's all cool. That's not what he says. He doesn't say God loves you so much that he's going to let you lie in your own filth and die. Because that would be stupid. Instead, he says, God loves you, and he's not willing to let you die. He's not willing to let you die in ignorance because you don't know. Therefore, repent. He's offering you grace now. Don't wait. Why would you wait? And why would we hesitate 
if we love people. If we love, we speak truth. But love must be both our motive and our manner. It must be the reason we speak the truth. It must be the way in which we speak the truth. With kindness, gently, but firmly. Lastly, notice this. Every member of the body of Christ is a minister to the body of Christ. Every member of the body of Christ is a minister to the body of Christ. Verse 16 of chapter 4. He says, from Him, from Christ, the whole body, the church, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, us, the members of the church, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. In 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, we see this picture of a body with many parts. No part is unimportant. When any piece is missing, the body suffers. One fistful of dirt removed, and England is the less. When we see this reality, that all of us have a responsibility to hold one another together, just as we saw in verses 11 and 12, that the teaching, the the proclaiming, is to prepare us for acts of service, to serve one another in the body in order that we might grow up, that we might build one another up. We recognize that every member is a minister. Every member of the body of Christ is a minister to the body of Christ. We are responsible for one another. Cain's attitude resulted in him saying when the Lord asked about his brother Abel whom Cain had slain he said I don't know am I my brother's keeper in the church the answer is a resounding yes we are our brother's keeper if you will we are responsible for one another. One of the ways that we learn the values of our family is our little sister who runs and tattles to mom and dad. If you have a little sister, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right, Josh? You realize that's part of the plan. That's how it works. We learn what is right and what is wrong from our brothers and sisters as well as from our parents. It's the job of every believer to build up the rest. As much as it's my assignment to teach the Word of God to you, it is your assignment to hold me accountable, to be faithful to the Word of God. Therefore, if you're going to hold me as the preacher accountable, if you're going to watch to make sure that I'm faithful to the Word, then you've got to know the Word. You have to study You have to study to show yourself approved, a workman who need not be ashamed, so that we can walk together building one another up. Growing deep is essential to life in Christ. There's no way around it. We cannot remain infantile believers. Many of the struggles to which Christians fall prey are due to arrested spiritual development. If we love Jesus, 
and have received life in him, we will not suddenly stop being human or stop falling down in our daily walk, but we ought to have an abiding hunger for him, to know him more, to reflect him better. We have received mercy. We need to display mercy. Peter has this in mind in 1 Peter 2, verses 2 and 3, when he says, Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. There's a craving for more in a healthy baby who has tasted life-giving milk. We've got some new calves on the farm, and these new calves need to get started nursing on their mothers. They need to get that colostrum. It's going to help them and build up uh, the, the antibodies. But what needs to happen for that calf to thrive is it needs a desire. And once it latches on and gets a taste of that milk, it wants more and more and more. But you know, at some point, that calf has to start eating grass. It's not going to grow and develop like it should if all it has is milk. And it doesn't take long, only, only a day or so, before the calf starts to do what mom does. And it starts to look for grass. At first, just a little bit. Can't digest much. Over time... It grows, and it needs solid food. There's a craving for more in a healthy baby who has tasted, tasted life-giving milk. But babies aren't meant to live on milk forever. They need to move beyond that stage of growth to be healthy. 1 Corinthians 14.20, Paul writes, Brothers, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be mature. God condemned this in the Old Testament as well. In Jeremiah 4.22, he says, For my people are fools. They've not known me. They're foolish children without understanding. They're skilled in doing evil, but they know not how to do good. In Hebrews 5, uh, 5.11-6.3, you can look it up for yourself. The writer of Hebrews is making the same point. Man, I ought to be able to talk to you about these things that are, are deeper. He's trying to talk to them about the priesthood of Christ. Is that, I, I want to say more, but it's a waste of time. Because you're not ready for solid food. You should be, but you're still drinking milk. That was great when you started, but now you need solid food. It's a waste of time. For me to continue to try and take you farther. Listen, we can't walk worthy of our calling without growing deep in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. To live the kind of life that fits a king's kid, we must know the king, we must know who we are as his children, and we must know the family values and heritage. We need the solid food of sound doctrine, the exercise of doing the Lord's work in love, the health and good hygiene of hating and turning away from sinful thoughts and behaviors and the discipline of suffering in order to grow up and be all that being a king's kid entails. Growing deep is essential to life in Christ. A life worthy of a child of God is rooted in truth and knowledge as we grow up to be like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, help us Help us to be infants regarding evil, but 
in our thinking to be mature. Lord, we're at different stages of growth, all of us. And so for those who are at a phase where milk is appropriate, give us a taste for it. That we take in more and more and more so that we can grow and move on to solid food. Protect us from the temptation of staying the same. Father, forgive us for putting more effort into developing in things that just don't matter than we do in our spiritual growth. For spending more time on our hobbies, more money on our education, more effort in our nutrition physically than we do into feasting on your word or exercising the godliness that you call us to. Forgive us, Father. Make us better. And in the midst of all of this, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you have already given us in Christ everything that we need for a godly life. Now help us to make our calling and election sure by walking it out. We pray these things in the name of the one who died for us, Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen.